0: There is plenty of evidence to suggest that DEI is not only the right thing to do, but it's also good for business. In order to understand why, we first need to take a look at just a smattering of evidence about diversity, equity, and inclusion. According to a report by McKinsey & Company, companies in the top quartile for racial and ethnic diversity are 35% more likely to have financial returns above their industry medians. And Companies with a more diverse leadership are 48% more likely to experience above-average profitability. A recent study by Harvard Business Review has shown that implementing DEI initiatives can result in a 45% boost in financial performance. Companies with more diverse workforces perform better financially and a workforce that mirrors the demographics of your customer base is 35% more profitable. Sexual orientation has been linked with increased revenue and market share. Gender diverse companies are 15% more likely to have higher profits. Organizations with strong DEI programs have lower employee turnover. Additionally, companies with more diverse workforces perform better financially as I said, and diverse teams are more innovative, productive, and creative it's estimated that diverse and inclusive companies are 60 percent more likely to outperform their peers where decision-making is concerned and check this out customers prefer doing business with companies that reflect their values and for you money folks the cash flow of diverse companies is 2.3 times higher than than those of companies with a more homogenous staff. Diverse companies are 70% more likely to capture new markets than organizations that do not actively recruit and support talent from underrepresented groups. And all of that was just an appetizer for this episode. Hey y'all, I'm Abdullah, and this is the EquiLeader Podcast. Welcome to the EquiLeader Podcast. I'm Abdullah Muhammad. DEI educator, consultant, strategist, and a 25-year veteran of these management and leadership streets. The EquiLeader is here to help you provide practical and actionable content for you frontline professionals who care about diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. This is your podcast, and you are the EquiLeaders. So without further ado, let's get into it. EquiLeaders, what's good and welcome back. I figured I'd get you all's attention by starting off with the business case for DEI and that it's not about changing hearts and minds, it's about producing tangible, measurable results. So what I shared at the top of the podcast, again, was just a smattering of the business benefits of DEI, but don't think that the benefits just extend to only business. So for you school district folks that don't deploy DEI and ongoing work, you will likely notice the following challenges. LGBTQIA plus students are four times more likely to experience violence at school. 90% of transgender students report feeling unsafe at school. 60% of LGBTQIA plus students feel that they don't have anywhere to turn when they face a problem. And people of color are more likely to be targeted for hate and race-based incidents than other groups. So clearly, providing DEI training and ongoing work is critical in creating community and the cultural and critical competence necessary for your staff, your customers, your clients, and your students to succeed. So when it comes down to it, There's really no good reason not to have a strong, calculated, and measurable DEI strategy deployed in your organization. So what does all this mean for DEI professionals? It means that if you want your company or your organization to thrive, focus on creating an inclusive environment where everyone is free to be their best selves. And to do that, you start with a killer DEI workshop strategy. So EquiLeaders, in the first episode, I explained some reasons why DEI trainings don't work. And I did say that they don't work, but I didn't say that they couldn't work. So today, let's look at the other side of the coin and how to make your DEI trainings more effective. I'm going to share just a few ideas. I'm going to go a little bit in depth on these, but track with me here. So the first one is that for many organizations, a DEI presentation, a training or a workshop Is really the front door to creating a common vocabulary addressing any disparities that your business or your organization seeks to correct for minoritized or marginalized groups. And for so many organizations, this ends up being the main course in the meal that is to become your organization's equity work. And if this is the main course of your equity work, what you really provide. Is something on the order of that little package of bagged ramen noodles or a frozen TV dinner. And if I've heard it once, I've heard it a million times. And if you've been doing this for any period of time, you've probably heard it too. And that is that when asked what DEI efforts an organization has done, the leadoff pitch is typically that they've done, and I wish y'all could see my air quotes on this, training. So let's return to the meal analogy. A DEI training isn't and shouldn't be the entree, it's an appetizer. An effective DEI training should be both the appetizer and the sorbet, you know, the, the, the palate cleanser between the courses that allows you to fully appreciate all the colors, flavors, and textures of the dish or of the next course. So, how can we make DEI training and the larger DEI efforts more effective? The first place to start is with your senior leadership. So as leadership coach John Maxwell says, everything rises and falls on leadership. This is never more true than in the world of DEI. The work your organization is doing must, and I mean must, start with the commitment and the participation of the senior leadership team. Your leaders should be on the front lines of your DEI efforts. They are your generals. They should be the pilot cohort. They should be on the steering committee. They should be the ones who care the absolute most about the change your organization is trying to make and the culture they're trying to create. So if you are a senior leader and decision maker in your organization and you're listening to my podcast and you're listening to my voice, please hear me loud and clear. Do not begin to undertake any DEI work until your leadership team is fully invested. Let me run that back. Do not begin to undertake any DEI work until your leadership team is fully invested. So if you as a leader and the rest of your senior leadership team is not bought in, your effort will fail. And you can take that to the bank. There can be no uncertainty, no wavering, no let's just agree to disagree, nothing. If the leadership team isn't of one mind, stop there and work it out. Do not move forward. So what you want to do is you want to discuss the apprehensions, discuss the differences of opinion, and work through them. And ultimately, and this is an extreme case, but I've seen it, You may have to coach someone along to help them see the value to the organization and to the people you serve, or you may have to coach them out. Don't make it about their personal insight or about getting it. Make it about a change in the DNA of your organization. But as a senior leader myself, and I've actually had this conversation, it goes something like this. So Sarah, I understand that we may never get to one mind about this, but this is where our organization is going. This is why it's good for our clients. This is why it's good for our customers, our students, etc. Sarah, I need you with me, but if you can't get on board with the direction we're headed, this new direction of who we are becoming as an organization might not be for you. Yes, I have had that conversation. So if people self-select out, that's okay. I mean, everyone, is a valuable part of your team. But I promise you, if your team is not in lockstep with the vision you're aiming for, those valued employees who really aren't with it, so to speak, can and often do become your saboteurs. So whether it's specifically DEI related or it's about the vision and mission of your organization as a whole, unanimity of purpose is a hallmark of all high-performing and high-functioning teams. So the next thing you want to do to have an effective DEI training as part of the appetizer or the front door of your DEI work is to do pre-work with your staff. Prepare them for the change and don't just spring it on them. That, by the way, creates a lot of resentment that you could preempt with a better strategy. So you'll find that there are basically three groups of people in your organization. There's the choir. These are the folks who are gung-ho and ready to go. These are your, your early adopters and your evangelists. These are the folks who couldn't wait for you to get started with the DEI efforts and who've kind of been wondering what took you so long. So pick a few of them and enlist their help as change champions. And so when people are poo-pooing the coming DEI efforts in the cubicles and in the offices and in the classrooms, or, or when the group of folks go out to lunch, and believe me, they will, you'll want to have a network of people championing the work that are planted in some strategic places. The next group that you want to pay attention to is your negative folks. So these are the polar opposite of your cheerleaders. These are your your Oscar the Grouches, right? So, but for your Oscar the Grouches, don't write them off. Don't dismiss them. Engage them. Have pre-conversations with the negative Nancys and the negative Nathans in your group and ask what are their apprehensions and fears. And listen to them and address them if you can. You want to follow up with them after the training to get their feedback, to find out, you know, how it went and just their general sense of how they felt about the work. You want to enlist them to help make any future efforts better. Some of these folks may even become your cheerleaders before you even start the trainings. And the third group that you want to pay attention to are the folks in the middle. These may seem like your like your wild cards, but they can fall on either side. When you think about them, notice the cultural inertia of your organization because gravity will typically pull those folks in the middle to one side or the other. These people tend to be the least vocal in your organization. If they have a bad experience, you'll likely never hear about it. And the best way to win the people in the middle is to also do some pre-work with a few of them but expect them not to be especially vocal, but ask them if they're comfortable sharing what they're excited about or what they're apprehensive about in the upcoming efforts. And again, they may not be vocal, but they will be effective in shifting the gravitational pull in the right direction as you seek to be about your DEI work. The next thing you want to do to make your DEI workshop a success is basically doing the converse of many of the things I provided in the previous episode about why they didn't work. So you want to make your training more effective by not seeking to change hearts and minds as the sole part of your DEI strategy. That might be an end result, but that's not where you start. It is better to behave yourself into a new way of thinking than it is to think yourself into a new way of behaving. And starting with the changing hearts and minds focus ends up being fraught for many reasons. I mean, let's just think about a few of them real quick. One, it's just hard to do. Two, the change is harder to verify. Three, it typically doesn't even last beyond the high of the initial event. Four, it entrenches the folks who are already resentful of the training to begin with. And five, it is ridiculously expensive to try to accomplish while netting very little results. So as a business owner, doing DEI training because you're competition or because everyone else is doing it is a waste of money. And if you are a public sector entity, it's a waste of taxpayer money. So instead of beginning your DEI work by trying to change hearts and minds, start here. I'm gonna give you the ABCs of this. So A, Clearly identify the problem you're trying to solve and what results have been produced by the problem. This could be done with a general data analysis or with a full-fledged equity audit. But your problem should be specific, behavioral, and measurable. B, get as clear as possible about any causes or contributing factors. And C, identify which of those factors are industry-related, system-related, or employee and organizationally related. This last one here is key because if your DEI work exists to address a societal problem that you can't fix, it is simply a waste of time. And many a DEI novice has tried to use training as the solution to a very ill-defined problem. So D, and finally, create clear metrics and and an accountability plan for measuring the effectiveness and the success of the trainings. Do a pre and post training survey as one example. So maybe an illustration here might help illustrate my point. For the first part of my career, I did social work. I worked in group care, in child welfare, in child mental and behavioral health, and I also supervised child welfare workers in three counties in my state and was part of a national child welfare initiative addressing minority overrepresentation in my state's child welfare system. So when you look at the child welfare system nationally, what you find when you look at disparities and overrepresentation for different racial groups, what you find is that African American and Native American children across the nation are more than twice as likely to end up in foster care than white children. And when they stay in foster care, they stay an average of nine months longer. And this is, by the way, according to an influential study released by the Annie E. Casey Foundation, and it's been updated several times over the years. So putting this in an numerical context, African-Americans make up about 14% of the child population, yet black children account for 24% of the children in foster care. By contrast, white children make up 52% of the population and only 43 or 44, give or take, percent of the foster care population. And that's according to maybe 2014, 2015 figures. But I promise you, I have been following these trends since about 2004, and no matter what year you pick, there may be some slight variations up or down, but that generally stays about the same. So why is it that this disparity exists in the social work? And by the way, it doesn't just exist in social work. If you're an educator listening to my voice, you will find a similar pattern there. If you are in the medical field, you'll find a similar pattern there. If you're in real estate, you'll find a similar pattern there, right? Even in real estate, if you're black, you're gonna get shown fewer houses in worse neighborhoods and the assumption will be that you can't afford the houses in the, in the quote, better neighborhoods. So to come back, Why is it that this disparity exists? Well, in the child welfare world, it was widely believed for quite a long time, and I think still is believed by many, that the disparity was due to the fact that Black parents abused their children more than any other racial group. I mean, what else could it be? If Black kids are in the system at higher rates, Black parents must be doing things that result in having those more kids in the system. But Child welfare research done by people like the Annie E. Casey Foundation and a bunch of others pulled stats and data from each state and a bunch of other entities. And what they discovered is that that was not true. Numerically, people do not abuse their kids at different rates across racial groups. So what's causing the disparity? So to shortcut the story, the causes discovered nationally were twofold. The first was implicit racial bias on the part of child welfare professionals and social workers. The second was the systemic racism toward African-American children throughout the entire child welfare system. That is the people in the the child abuse intake all the way through the people who supervise the child welfare cases to the people uh, in the courts, to the attorneys and the judges, to the guardians ad litem to the therapist, to the entire child welfare system. Now, that's research done by many states who are engaging in child welfare work. That's research done by the National Council of Family and Juvenile Court Judges. That's research done by a lot of people. Now, there is loads of research that demonstrates that this similar problem is, again, faced in education, the legal system, the medical profession, real estate, and other fields. So. What were the interventions that we tried in our scenario? We tried many, but like many of you, and you can probably anticipate this, the first thing we did was we had a training and we hired very expensive consultants to come in and train not just a small cohort of our staff, but to train all of our staff. And so in the primary county and the largest county in my state, in the major city of my state, what we did is that we trained every single social worker in that county. We trained every single supervisor. We trained every single judge on the juvenile court, family court bench. We trained many guardians at litem. We trained some family attorneys. We trained uh, school behavioral interventionists. We trained some school staff. We trained a few school principals. And we trained several community stakeholders. We trained therapists. We trained people who ran local group care and psychiatric institutions for children. We trained a lot of people. And to boot, we also since have trained every social worker in my state a few times over and many other community organizations statewide. Now, that was the primary intervention that we tried. We also tried to preemptively discuss and coach and get apprehensions from some of the staff who we predicted might be challenging or might not appreciate or like or support the content. And we actually won a couple of those people over and they actually became pretty good evangelists for the work. But as I'm cautioning you on this podcast, in that scenario, we did what many organizations do. We gave training and we by and large assumed that information would change hearts and minds and thereby change behavior. So what do you think happened? It did not. I'm also here to tell you, after being heavily involved in that work, it is now 2022 as I record this, after being heavily involved in that work since 2004, I can tell you very confidently that the intervention early on was a success, but it was a success because of the leverage of a few committed people. When those people became uncommitted, became fatigued with the work or just moved on to different positions, the work sputtered. And as far as I understand today, as I record this, didn't fully die. But definitely is not as robust at, as it has been in previous years. Now, it's not all doom and gloom. There actually were several positive outcomes that are still in practice to this day. But the primary intervention of the DEI workshop, which we did every month, sometimes twice a month for several years, and now on a coordinated basis throughout my state the primary work of delivering workshops without a follow-up plan, without an accountability plan, without metrics in the annual evaluations of staff has not proven effective. And in my state, in the child welfare arena, we saw a decline initially in the disparities, we saw a plateau, and then we saw an upward trend. And so after, about 17 or so years of the work being done, we're actually back where we started and in some counties, slightly worse. Now, the final thing that will help your DEI trainings be more effective is to approach them with a fundamental trust and respect of your participants. Affirm the professional expertise of your participants. Affirm their time. Affirm their contribution to your shared work. Make the workshops about the clients, the customers, the students, so forth. Don't approach the experience with an undercurrent of, well, y'all are racist, so I'm here to tell you about your racist selves. No, don't do that. Now, I know that may sound like hyperbole, but I promise you I've seen that happen many, many times. But even without that extreme of an example, many DEI trainings, and if you sat through some DEI trainings, be honest, they felt a bit like tough love sessions and tough love seminars more than they have felt like valuable professional development. And yours truly made this mistake early in my career because that's what was modeled for me by more than a few DEI facilitators. I mean, the content is tough enough and it requires emotional labor from both the facilitators and the participants. So approach the sessions with care. I mean, don't go completely out of your way to make people uncomfortable, but don't avoid making people uncomfortable. I mean, it's it's a delicate balance, but you want to approach the sessions with care. And in my faith tradition, we would say something like, speak the truth in love. You want to... Approach your DEI workshops from the perspective of love, understanding of difference, and understanding of shared humanity. So, EquiLeaders, a DEI workshop is an experience. You want to cultivate the experience in a way that makes the participants excited to accept the challenge of DEI and to look at the work critically and solve the problem. It shouldn't be a gotcha. But making the focus of the trainings, the results you're getting and the world you'd like to create is the better way to go. Paint a picture of the world you'd like people to see. Don't bludgeon them over the head with guilt or white guilt or you caused this problem because of your unconscious racism, queer and transphobia, toxic partisanship or patriarchy. I mean, unconscious bias is unconscious for a reason. You don't know that you're doing it. You're unaware of it, right? And so you want to approach your trainings with the full understanding that the people that are there to help people and do good work sometimes show up with preconceptions, with biases that they may not know that are there. And that is it's your job in your DEI trainings to help highlight the problem so that we can change the behavior, so that we can change the results, so that we can improve the situations for our customers, our clients, and our kids. So focusing on people's perceived racism, making them feel guilty, causing them distress, and so forth, is just simply not the move. But a healthy friction and the discomfort of new ideas is healthy. But again, don't intentionally create distress. Also, keep in mind that these folks are your team. These trainings don't happen in isolation. You have to see these folks tomorrow. And if you've hired an outsider to deliver the content, be very careful who you choose and get a sense for how they will make your staff feel. That goodwill, I assure you, that goodwill or the lack thereof will be transferred to you. So when you approach DEI training, do it from that place. And I promise you that you'll get more buy-in more participation, and with the right follow-up strategy, more lasting results. EquiLeaders, thanks for listening. I hope this information was helpful. If you have questions, go ahead and hit me up on Instagram and Twitter at ThatDudeDilla or email me at info at Until next time, good luck in the trenches. I'm right there with you. Peace. Thanks for listening to the EquiLeader podcast. The EquiLeader podcast is a production of Monarch Training and Development.